Jeremiah, excuse me, 45, the divine right. You'll notice as you get to Jeremiah 45, it is a short chapter. Uh, there's perhaps an irony to the fact that uh, I try to get through two chapters when they're each 40 verses long. But this week we are dwelling on just this one chapter, Jeremiah 45, the divine right. A very short passage of scripture which by God's grace will enable us to focus our time on the contemplation of these few words. The Bible is a book of grace. It is a book of hope and it is a book of of joy that has been reflected uh, in the songs that we sang this evening, which are not songs that are conjured out of thin air. They are songs that are wholly reliant upon and drawn out from the promises that God has made in His Word. And the reflection of uh, this singing that we, we had together this evening is a reflection of our personal experience in the realities of the things that we sang about, in the realities of heaven coming down and glory filling our soul uh, on that day when we believe. The realities of the mighty power of God, the heavens declaring the glory of God, the reality of that day-by-day relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that allows me, even in those times of trouble, the mingling of toil and rest, the mingling of pain and pleasure, to live on that same plane of joy in the midst of the roller coaster of life because of the hope, the blessed hope that we have in the Lord. This book, this grace, this mercy, this hope, this joy, that is what the Bible is filled with but indeed is only realized unto those who accept its claims and receive its offers. One of the things that we have also seen as we walk through the book is that, uh, particularly of Jeremiah, is that for those who walk contrary to the warnings and the callings of the Word of God, the Bible is a book of judgment and of sorrow. Beyond this, the followers of the book will not always find, even as we sang in Day by Day, they'll not always find that everything in this life is happy, Right? There is no promise in the Word of God that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ that life will be all cherry blossoms and roses. It isn't easy to live in a world that's walking contrary to the Word of God when you walk with the Word of God. To follow the Word of God in this context is to walk contrary to the flow of this world, to the current of life. And it brings with it its own set of complications and of difficulties and of trials. And you know, when we see that, when we come to those difficult days, sometimes for ourselves, sometimes for others, it can be difficult at times to reconcile all of these things in our hearts and in our minds, can't it? It isn't easy to see those perhaps that we love walk away from truth. It isn't easy to stand for truth in the day when standing for truth means suffering or shame. It isn't easy to contemplate the sorrowful end for those who will reject the truths of the Word of God. And these conflicts, these feelings, they're not uncommon among believers, nor are they anything new. We will come across just such feelings today as we read this very short chapter of Scripture in Jeremiah 45. 
This is the final chapter of Jeremiah that is written to the Jews. After this, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, are all speaking to Gentile nations about their judgment. And then 52 will be kind of a summary chapter, a closing summary at the end of the prophecy. And this final message is actually not written directly to Judah or to the remnant that fled to Egypt. We've already talked to them a lot, right? This final chapter is written to one man. It's written to Baruch, the son of Neriah. You remember him. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's look at verse 1 of Jeremiah 45. The Bible says this, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spake unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the mouth of Jeremiah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, and we'll pick up there, we find the setting and the context given here in verse 1, and again, we're going back in time, right? So in the last several chapters, we've been with Jeremiah in Egypt. That is after the last days of Zedekiah. That is after uh, Jerusalem has fallen in 586 B.C. That is after all of those events have taken place, right? And then uh, we, we've traced throughout all of those. Well, now we go back in time to the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And this is an important year. We're actually going to be in the same year next week. This is the year, recall, that the first deportation took place, 605. This is also the year where Baruch, the son of Neriah, wrote the words of Jeremiah and then read them in the temple and then read them before Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim cut them up and threw them into the fire at that same time that they were being read to him. All of this was happening at that same time. And then, of course, Jeremiah writes the words again and adds some extra words. Now, we've studied 44 chapters of Jeremiah, and those words that were written at that time, of course, were written to the nation of Judah. So we don't exactly know where they are in Jeremiah, but we know we've read them already and we've studied them. And so we've read and we've contemplated those judgments that God had levied against the nation for their unwillingness to listen. Now, Baruch had many adventures with Jeremiah, did he not? That this was, the, in chapter 36, that was his first adventure, even though it's not the first time we see him in the book. That was chronologically the first adventure that we have recorded of him and Jeremiah. He writes the words that Jeremiah dictated. Uh, he goes and he reads them, and he ends up watching as they get burned by the king. But he would also, in Jeremiah 26, as we've said before, he would validate the purchase of the field for Jeremiah when Jeremiah is sitting in the prison in the days of Zedekiah. Uh, he would also be with Jeremiah on the day when Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, was assassinated. And then Ishmael sought to take the whole clan to Ammon, to the Ammonites. And then Joanon comes and rescues them and then takes them just outside of Bethlehem. And then he's with them when they all go down to Egypt. So, so Baruch has, has a lot of things, um, a, a lot of time with Jeremiah. They were faithful friends. He was a faithful friend of the prophet. Now, we mentioned in chapter 36 when we were there that though this was not the, the first time in the book that we had seen Baruch, it was the first time chronologically that Baruch had been introduced to us. And think back with me to those early chapters 
of the book of Jeremiah. It was most likely many of those early chapters that Baruch was reading as he was telling the nation of the inevitable judgment that was coming if they did not repent. And do you recall, it's been a long time now, it's been over a year since we've been in a lot of those early chapters, but do you recall the, the troubling, the, the, the troubled heart of Jeremiah in those early chapters? Do you recall how, how troubled he was by what he was reading? How, how passionate he was to find someone to listen? He was so convinced that if only he got to the right person in authority, that they would hear these words and that they would lead the nation to repentance. And then when it didn't happen, do you remember how frustrated he got and his prayers of frustration to the Lord as, as his, his hope rolled over into just this incomprehensible idea that these people are hearing the word of God and, and just flat out ignoring it. Jeremiah was not the only one who had such struggles. And so as we go back in time to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, we're going to get a little bit of insight into Baruch's frustrations this evening. Baruch has written every word that Jeremiah has spoken. He has read them in the temple. He watched as the king cut them up and threw them into the fire. Then he got to write them all over again. (laughs) And perhaps it is that he's beginning to realize as he's writing these words again after they'd been burned by the king that these judgments are going to happen to this city. That the people will be destroyed. That they will be pursued by pestilence, by the sword, and by famine. And imagine what would well up in the heart of Baruch. And so it's at this time that God sends a message directly to Baruch. And God's message to him is what we'll contemplate together this evening. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto thee, O Baruch, Thou didst say, Woe is me now, for the Lord hath added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Baruch is in a state of lamentation here. And as he describes it, he says that the Lord has added grief to his sorrow. When I read this, the immediate thing that popped into my mind was Psalm 77. I'm not going to go there this evening. But in Psalm 77, the psalmist is speaking about how he can't sleep and how he's so troubled that he cannot even speak, that his mouth cannot even utter the words of his trouble because of the circumstances around him. And Baruch is in this sort of a, a place he, he is proclaiming this woe, and he says that the Lord has added grief to his sorrow. This is the way he's describing what he's feeling right now. And it's because of such grief that he is deeply troubled, so that he cannot even rest. He fainted in his sighing. He's troubled to the very core of his being. And the idea of the Lord adding grief to his sorrow is this. Baruch is already deeply sorrowed by the evil of his people by their rebellion. And now he's writing and he's experiencing uh, the realities of God's judgment upon the people for it. And that is adding grief to his sorrow. 
It is adding a grief that the people now have to be judged for the very thing over which he is sorry for, that they are walking contrary to the word of God. This troubled mind at the determination of the Lord to judge is very reminiscent. I already, I spoke of Psalm 77 where the psalmist had this idea, but it's very reminiscent of many of the prophets. It is not uncommon when you read the prophets They knew the Lord. They proclaimed the Lord's message. And as they contemplated the essence of the message that God had for them to deliver, when they fully realized, particularly as they delivered this message, that the heart of God's people were hardened to it, they would be deeply troubled and say, God, are you really going to do this to your people? This is the whole essence of Habakkuk. God, are you really going to do this to your people? And then are you really going to use another pagan nation, Babylon, to be the the object of, of your wrath? How can this be? They didn't understand it. It didn't make a lot of sense to them either. These are God's chosen people, the ones he has called the apple of his eye, his beloved. How could God do such a thing to them? To this end, we find this sort of expression whereby Baruch states that the Lord has added grief to his sorrow. Grief, sorrow because of the sin of of God's people. Grief because of the judgment that the Lord has proclaimed against them. So this is what Baruch is going through. And God has a direct message to him, which we find in verse 4. The Bible says, Thus shalt thou say unto him, The Lord saith thus, Behold, that which I have built will I break down. And that which I have planted, I will pluck up even this whole land. Notice the way God expresses this. That which I have built, God says, I will break down. That which I have planted, I will pluck up. God is seeking to give Baruch a reoriented perspective on what is happening here. To give him a renewed perspective on what he's witnessing. God is not taking away Judah's city. God is not taking away Israel's temple. God is not judging Baruch's people. God is judging his people. God is tearing down what he built up. God is giving the divine perspective, something which we all sorely need. We live in a material world that is bound by time, the physical rules by which it operates. Those physical rules are everywhere. That's gravity, right? No matter what I held up and dropped, it would all do the same thing this evening. It would all slam itself to the ground. We operate under these physical rules, bound by these physical rules. It is not uncommon thus to see things with which we interact with and to see them uh, in some way to claim them as our own, our health, right? Our bodies, our families, our children, our homes, our possessions, our human rights. But he who knows God knows that this is somewhat of a short-sighted perspective on things. That the happy man, the blessed man, is the man who understands that all which we have is that which we have received. The gifts and the blessings from above. That, as we sang this evening, all that borrow life from thee are ever in thy hands, right? That our life is borrowed for a time. 
by, out of the hand, the gracious hand of a loving God. To this end, Baruch is reminded that he is not entitled to anything. That Judah is not entitled to anything. That their city, that their temple, that their lives, they're not entitled to them. You are not owed good health. You are not owed prosperity. You are not owed a family. You are not owed your life. You are not owed anything by God. God does not owe you anything. Everything is given to you from the bountiful hand of the God of all flesh. And God says here, the whole land is under his wrath. He will pluck up what he planted, even the whole land. So God verifies what Baruch has been writing and reading, that God will do as he promised, but that it doesn't necessarily need to add grief to his sorrow. The sorrow is valid. The sorrow for God's people, the sorrow for those who will head into judgment, the sorrow for the realities of their rebellion, that's valid. But the grief, Lord, you've added grief to my sorrow, not as valid. Because God says, I will break down what I built. I will pluck up what I planted. God then goes on to say in verse 5, And seekest thou great things for thyself? Remember, God's still talking to Baruch. Seek them not, for behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places whither thou goest. We don't know fully what is going on in Baruch's heart here. We know that he is very grieved. We know that he is sorrowful. But it would appear that there might be something else going on as well. Not just grief and sorrow, but perhaps uh, some measure of indignance against God because God is taking away what he loves. Taking away his home. Even though he's not one of the ones that's walking in rebellion, the temple is still going to be destroyed, right? The city is still going to be razed to the ground. The people around him, his friends, his countrymen are still going to die. He may not be a part of the rebellion, but he is going to be intrinsically affected by it. And it seems as though to some degree or another, there was a little bit of frustration in Baruch's heart over this. And God asks him, do you seek great things for yourself? Do you, in the midst of the great sin of the land and the worthiness of judgment, think that you are owed something different? Think that you should get different treatment? God says, don't seek great things for yourself. Don't seek to, to be raised above what I have declared. The whole land will be visited with judgment, so don't make extra demands of me. God says, however, your life will be given to you for a prey. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this phrase. As a matter of fact, we've seen this phrase several times in the book. The idea of his life being given to him for a prey, it would have been a, a, a figure of speech that means his life will be spared. That, that he will have, just like one who catches a prey, he will catch his life, right? He will have his life for himself. And we've seen this phrase many times in the book. Baruch will not die in the midst of these judgments as so many others would. Wherever Baruch goes, God will take care of him. Now God has promised this to several people in the book, right? He's promised it to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's promised it to Jeremiah and he's promised it to Baruch. The three men thus far in the book that we've seen who have been unfailingly faithful. And so the idea is this. 
No man is innocent before God. Every man deserves judgment. And anything other than judgment is mercy. Right? Anything other than judgment is mercy. Anything above judgment is grace. And so God seeks to offer to Baruch this perspective. And this is a perspective which is not uncommon among scriptures. And let me just emphasize this once again before we go to our application this evening. And we're already getting to our application because there's only five verses in the chapter. It is not uncommon for us to wrestle with the thoughts of fairness and equity from a perspective of human life and emotion. God, how is this fair? God, how is this equitable? This is not uncommon. And from a human perspective, it is not even wrong. I mean, it's not even out, out, out far afield from a human perspective. When we look at, at, at little children who are suffering from some incurable disease, we say, God, how is that fair? When there are evil people walking around perfectly healthy, right? How is it fair, God, that, that, that this good man dies young and that evil man lives to be 100? How is it fair that you live and, and, and you work and you're honest and you don't lie and you don't cheat and you pay your taxes and whatnot and, and you, you just make it by and the man who, who cuts every corner in the book is the man who is prospering in this world. How is that fair? And from a human perspective, those questions are valid. It's not uncommon for us to see the trials and the suffering and the sorrow among what we would deem to be the good as unjust but this is only as we are looking at things from man's eyes, from a human perspective. But when we see things the way God sees things, everything changes, right? Everything changes. When we filter our understanding through the eyes of God, the God that, that gave us this book, the God of all flesh, what we find is that God is perfectly right and just. And God has, in His infinite wisdom, in His infinite love, and in His infinite goodness, provided a way of escape, provided an eternal blessing, far above and beyond the inequities of this life. And that while in this life we are guaranteed nothing, there are promises for the life to come if only we will align with them. So I'm going to apply this evening, but I'm going to do so in a very different way. Rather than make any definitive points with a, a, perhaps an exception of, of the very end, I just want to walk through the scriptures and I want us to contemplate other men's thinking on this issue. I want us to contemplate this concept, the idea of suffering, the idea of God's rights and my rights and my position as it relates to God from the mouths of other men in the scriptures. I wanted to go to so many different people. I had like a list of eight, and we're only going to do three, okay? Um, boy, I wanted to go a bunch more places. We could have done two weeks on this, but we're just not going to do that. So we're only going to go to three this evening. And hopefully, by doing so, we will use the wisdom of these men and of the scriptures to understand some things about God. So we're going to talk about God, Job, we're going to talk about Jonah, and we're going to talk about Paul. I wanted to talk about Habakkuk, I wanted to talk about David, I wanted to, to go any number of other places, but we will do these three men. And Job is perhaps the most obvious example of this. The life and philosophy of Job is that it relates to God's divine rights. 
comes in what we might consider three distinct phases, a process of growth throughout the book, if you will. In Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was also 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men in the East. So the book of Job begins with a description of a man who has um, everything, Right? He is a man who is perfect and who is upright, one that fears the Lord and eschews evil. So this is a righteous man. This is a man that has done right. And for it, God has blessed him. He has seven sons. He has three daughters. He has great physical wealth and a great household. He is the greatest of all the men of the East. And that would have been some great men, no doubt, at that time. So Job has it going very well, and the Lord has blessed him for his righteousness. And, and so we see this. And in the account, as it continues, and of course I'm just summarizing here, Satan, and I have preached through the book of Job, so uh, feel free to go back and listen to that. It was a, it was a good series. That was a, a really good one. Um, the account continues with Satan coming before God and God asking if he has considered Job. Have you, uh, God says, where have you been? Satan says, going to and fro. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, yes, I have, but I can't touch him because you're protecting him. But Satan says, if you stopped protecting him and you allowed trouble into his life, he would immediately crumble. He's only serving you. He only loves you because of what he has gotten from you. You take that away, he will curse you to your face. God says, challenge accepted. You may touch Job's things, but you may not touch Job himself. So it is that according to the account, all in one day, Job has a messenger come, tell him that his ten children were eating together in one house and a wind blew, blew it over and all ten children died. Then another came and said that all of his possessions had been raided and taken. Then another came and said that all of his fields, that the, that, that the fire of God and lightning had struck and that the fields had been burned up. And so Job loses everything in that one day. He has gone from being wealthy and great and having ten children to being a man of, in poverty and abject loss. Just that quickly, he went from everything to nothing. Now, from a human perspective, God, how dare you? How could this happen to me? I've served you. I've been good to you. I've loved you. I've been faithful to you. How could you do that? But that's not what we find, is it? Because Job has God's perspective on things. So we read in Job 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose. After hearing all this, he arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. See, what I just said, that human perspective stuff, that would have been charging God foolishly, right? That would have been seeking to impose my context upon God. But instead, Job imposes God's context upon him. And he says, look, I came into this world with nothing, and if I leave it with nothing, then that's God's right. What a perspective. 
in response to such great loss. Now, Job is sad. He's mourning, right? He rends his mantle. He shaves his head. He falls down upon the ground. He is not a happy guy at this moment in time. Worship does not imply that that Job liked what happened to him. Worship reveals the heart of Job to justify the goodness of God in the midst of his sorrow, to expressly demonstrate what he knows, which is that God was in control and God had every right to take away what he had given to Job. And this is exactly what Job says. I came into the world with nothing. Whatever I gained is nothing more than the good hand of God upon me. Every day is a gift. Now I have nothing again. And God has every right to put me back the way he found me. (laughs) This is not God being cruel. This is not God being mean. This is not God being unfair. This is God's divine right. So Job does not charge God foolishly. And that is what we do when when we question God in such a manner. That is what we do when we levy charges of unfairness or unkindness upon God. We charge Him foolishly. We speak out of ignorance and emotionalism, rather out of the objectivity of understanding the God of all flesh and understanding who we are in light of who He is. Well, of course, the story does not end there, right? Satan contends. He goes back to God and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, Yeah, 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 I get it. But here's the thing, God. A man will give anything for his life. See, you let me touch his stuff, but he didn't really care that much about his stuff. You let me touch his kids, but who cares about his kids? It's his health. If you take his health, then he'll get really angry because until it personally affects a man, a man is really selfish, until it personally affects him, what does he care, right? God says, okay, touch him, but you can't take his life. You can, you, you can have his health, but you can't have his life. You have to leave him alive. So the Bible ter- tells us, that Satan afflicted Job, that from the, the, the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, he was in constant pain and sorrow. And he had boils all over his body, so he couldn't sit, stand, lie down, anything without being in pain. He would scrape those boils with shards of pots, trying to, to, to clean them out so that they would stop uh, uh, throbbing and, and the swelling and the pain. He was, he was, he was in a lot of pain. And so Job is now sitting in this great amount of pain, having lost his children, having lost his possessions. And the Bible tells us this in verses 9 and 10. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as of the fool, uh, uh, excuse me, as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. See, Job gets it, right? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? Notice the contrast. This does not mean God sins or does wicked. That's not the idea of God doing evil or receiving evil of the Lord. It's not wickedness at the hand of the Lord. Rather, uh, the idea is just good versus bad, good things versus bad things, right? Shall not God justly bring what we would perceive to be bad things in our lives just as he would justly bring good things into our lives? When God brings good things into our lives, we say, Lord, thank you for the blessings. When he brings bad things in our lives, we say, God, how dare you? Well, can I put it this way? When God brings the good things into our lives, we could just as easily say, God, how dare you? Right? I I don't deserve that. What gives you the right 
What, what makes you think that I should have that? Just as much as, as, as the bad things. How silly is it that we thank God profusely for the things we call blessings and would seek to acknowledge them as the things that come from above and that are our right, and yet when bad things happen, we say, God, what is this? And we question God's right to allow that suffering, to allow that trial. God has just as much right to try me as he does to bless me. God has just as much right to give me little as he does to give me much. God has just as much right to bring into my life suffering as he does to bring into my life prosperity. We sang that in day by day this evening. Mingling toil with rest. But this demands an understanding of God from God's perspective rather than just from the human perspective. An understanding of God's divine right. Job understands this, but then his comforters come to him. And things get a little complicated. They begin insisting that Job is in sin and demanding of him in, uh, repentance. They insist that no man could possibly receive such terrible things in this life unless they were completely uh, rebelling against God, unless the, the, the anger of God was against him. And all the while throughout the book, Job spends his time defending himself. He spends his time saying, look, if there was something wrong, I would admit it, but I can't admit that I'm doing anything wrong because I'm not doing anything wrong. And then his wretched comforters speak up again and say, well, here's the thing. You're, the, the problems in your life uh, acknowledge that you are doing something wrong, so stop this stubbornness and just acknowledge that you're doing something wrong so that God, and, and repent of it so that God can, can restore you and can, reble- and, and can bless you. And then Job says again, I, I can't repent of something I didn't do. Uh, there's, I didn't do anything that, that, that is worthy of repentance. So we see this back and forth, and this is over the course of 35 chapters of Scripture, right? That we see this back and forth. Job is professing his innocence and he begins to get a little bit frustrated that he is being charged with sin where there is no sin. And he starts to demand that God vindicate him. That God vindicate his righteousness. And this is a whole another level of this understanding of the divine right. Job says, surely God has every right to do with me what he will, regardless of my actions. And surely God has every right to my worship and obedience, even when things are not well. But here's the thing. Does God have the right to sit silent in the heavens while I am being falsely charged? Or does, do I have the right to God's vindication? Job wanted vindication of the fact that his comforters were wrong and he was right. That his comforters were saying he was in rebellion, but he was not. So Job says this in Job 23, verses 1 through 10. Then Job answered and said, Even to this day is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, speaking of God. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would, I would make my case before the Lord that I'm right. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. I would ask him for an explanation is the idea here. Will he plead against me with his great power? No. But he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him. 
so should I be delivered forever for my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job wishes here that he could speak to God directly, that he could have God vindicate him. At the end, however, we find that he still does put his hope in God. He is still not charging God foolishly. He still says, this is what I want. I want God to vindicate me. And if I could speak with him, I would ask him, God, vindicate me. And I would ask him for an answer. But this one thing I still know, God knows. God knows, and when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. So Job is still hanging on to that vestige of the divine right here, right? He, hasn't, he has not lost the plot, but he's really, really struggling here. He acknowledges he has no right to his possessions, even to his life, but he's struggling with the right to be vindicated, the right to be regarded as a man who has done right. And sometimes this is the hardest thing to lose, isn't it? Vindication. When you're misunderstood and your good is counted for evil and you're falsely accused. I deal with this a lot with my children. When they want to be vindicated for something that they've done right and they, they really struggle, maybe not so much with the doing right as much as it is with the being vindicated uh, when maybe they got caught up in their siblings doing something wrong and they weren't doing something wrong and they got caught up in it because they were there and they want to get vindicated. They want to be vindicated and they really struggle with that, even though they were trying their best to do right. This is a hard thing as humans. Suffering wrongly at the hands of those who should know better. Like Moses, who was accused by the sons of Korah for, as, uh, for taking power for himself among the congregation. Power he never asked for. Power he didn't even want. Such was Job's frustration here. He says, look, I, wasn't, I didn't ask for this. And I, didn't, I don't deserve this, but I, and, and I recognize that God has the right to it, but I don't want to sit here and be berated by you all for, for, for what's going on. And so we continue through the book, and, and God does actually speak up at the end of the book, right? Beginning in Job 38, we read these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Speaking of his comforters. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When all the morning stars sang together, And all the sons of God shouted for joy, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? Who can number the clouds in wisdom? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven when the dust grows into hardness and the clods cleave fast together? God asked Job, Tell you what, you answer me a few questions and then then I'll, I'll consider answering you. Let me, let me make a few demands of you first, Job. Where were you when I made all this stuff? Who is it that has the power to hold back the tides? Who is it that has the wisdom to design all of those animals and all of their power and their greatness and their majesty and their beauty? 
Why do you think, Job, that you have the right to ask anything of me, to demand anything of me, to expect even an answer from me, Job? By what authority, through what power, by what right do you ask me for these things? And this goes on for three more chapters. God's very thorough here. God extolling his wisdom and his power and his majesty of his divine right because everything that happens upon this earth, every breath you take, every beat of your heart, every sound you hear, every bit of light that travels into your eyes and is processed so that you can see what's ahead of you, every rainfall, every bird call, everything that happens, happens by God's decree and according to his good pleasure. So halfway through this, Job has a chance to respond. He says this in Job 40, verses 1 through 5. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. So God says here at the end of these chapters, Now answer me, Job. I'll ask this of you. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. God asks Job, are you going to instruct the Almighty? Are you going to reprove me? What do you have to ask me? And Job says, the only thing I can say is, I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm vile. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to answer no more. I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth and be quiet. Because I don't even have the right to, to you answering me back. It's a privilege. I mean, God is answering him here. But Job had no right to that. God then continues to extol his greatness for another chapter and a half. And at the end, in Job chapter 42, we read this, Job's final response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I had heard of you, I knew who you were, now I've seen you, and all I can do is just repent and abhor myself for my, for, 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 for my wickedness. You are worthy, I am not. This is the divine right. This is a divine perspective. Listen, we have no more right to demand answers from God than we do to demand anything. We have no more right to our reputation before men than we do anything else. What Job lost slight of slightly, and I don't say this to accuse Job of anything, because after this, God punishes Job's three miserable comforters, and Job has to pray for them in order for them to be restored. Uh, Job has to intercede for them because Job was a man who had stood in his righteousness. But he did lose sight to a degree on the extent to which God's right extends. And it touches everything. God owes us nothing. And maybe that's what some of us need tonight, is to remember of the same thing. Maybe we have, like Job, or maybe like Baruch, felt as though God has not been fair, that God has added grief to our sorrow. We have sought for some great things for ourselves. We have sought for some vindication. We have felt as though God has not dealt with us justly. And we need to realign ourselves and understand things from God's perspective. As I said, I really wanted to go to David and Habakkuk and such, but we move on to Jonah. 
considering Jonah. Jonah is called by God to preach judgment to this group of people called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a violent, awful, awful people, uh, and they had been very violent against the nation of Israel. Jonah did not like the Assyrians, and I have no doubt the Assyrians did not like Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go to the Assyrians and preach judgment. And the reason why, as we get to the end of the book, is for this very reason, that Jonah knew that by preaching judgment, the Assyrians might just repent. And Jonah doesn't want them to repent, because if they repent, then God might show mercy. And Jonah doesn't want the Assyrians to have mercy. So Jonah runs the other direction so that they don't hear the message, so that God can judge them without mercy, so that they can be utterly destroyed, because that's what Jonah wants. Jonah wants them dead. An interesting minister of God, Jonah. So Jonah runs. God does not let him run. God chases him down. He chases him down in a boat on the way to Tarshish. He is caught, and he submits to God's preaching to, to, to God's call. Right? Wrong. He's on the boat, and he says, "Well, if I can't run from God, then I'll do the ultimate run." And he says, "Cast me into the sea." He wants to die. If he dies, then he can't preach judgment, then the Assyrians can't be spared. So they cast him into the sea and a big fish swallows him so he does not die. But he's in pretty miserable torment until he repents. He repents, the fish spits him out and he ends up going and preaching this message of judgment. He preaches this judgment and they repent. And ironically, they repent because they saw the sign of Jonah. Their primary god was a fish god and it just so happens that this man got spat out of a fish and comes and, t- and tells them of judgment. And the fact that he got spat out of a fish may very well have been the thing that convinced them to repent. And if Jonah hadn't have run to begin with and been swallowed by the fish and got spat out of a fish, they may never have repented. But they repented because of the sign of Jonah. God is, he has a sense of humor, doesn't he? And the nation repents and God diverts his judgment and faithfulness to his character. And this makes Jonah very grumpy. So we read in Jonah 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. (laughs) God, I knew that you were merciful. Isn't that why I told you I didn't want to go? I didn't want to go because I don't want your mercy upon this people. Really strange prophet. Okay, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, a tent, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He's going to sit there and, and, and hope for judgment in 40 days, right? And the Lord God prepared a gourd, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm. When the morning rose the next day, it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. I do well to want to die because of this gourd. Then said the Lord, 
Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And shouldst thou not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? See, within this chapter, we find such a unique set of circumstances meant to teach us some very important lessons. Jonah is angry at God for sparing the city of the judgment that he felt they deserved. So Jonah determined to sit in a tent on the east side of the city to watch until judgment came. Habakkuk says a very similar thing in Habakkuk 2. And God causes a plant called a gourd here to grow and to provide shade for Jonah. And Jonah is very glad for this plant. And then the next day, God causes a worm to come and to eat the plant so the roots die and then the plant withers away. And then uh, he adds insult to injury, right? Then he, the sun comes up and he sends a vehement east wind to beat upon Jonah so that he faints. So he's tired and he's hot and he's miserable and he has no more shade and it's awful. And he simply says, I want to die. Not the first time he said that in this book, right? And then God reasons with Jonah here. He seeks to give him a, a, a divine perspective. Jonah, you're angry. You feel like you have the right to be angry for the death of this gourd. You had not planted that gourd. You had not maintained that gourd. You did not make it grow. You did nothing. And yet you're sad that that gourd died because it was of a benefit and it was, it was good. It came and it went. And you're not happy that it went. Why would you then be willing to see the death of so many people without an issue? Particularly the 120,000 children that cannot discern from their right hand and their left. And all of that cattle that's there as well. Many had no part in the Assyrians' evil. Why would you not care for them if you care for this gourd? In this, another lesson is learned. God has the right to his own counsel. He has the right over our bodies, over our possessions, over our families. He has the right to judge and he has the right to show mercy. And we don't have the right to question him on that. God has the right to deal with me as he sees fit. God says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Paul speaks to the same concept as he contemplated the setting aside of Israel and their unbelief in Romans chapter 9. He actually quotes that verse. He says concerning Israel's rebellion in Romans 9, verses 15 through 21, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? See, Job tried to reply against God. It didn't work. Jonah tried to reply against God. It didn't work. Who are we to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? 
Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? This is a, a, a terribly misinterpreted portion of Scripture today. Uh, they'll bring into it the factors of salvation. That's not what God is saying here. God is talking about the right to be used or not to be used. The right to God, God's will and God's working in your life. God has every right to use who he will and every right to not use who he will. He has every right to make promises to the nation of Israel and to use them. And then he has every right, if they fail, to set them aside and to bring in something new, namely the church, to continue the process of reaching the world for him. He has every right to change how things are operating, as we talked about this morning. If God wants to make me a vessel unto honor, a vessel to be used through favor and blessing, God has every right to make me as a vessel unto honor. If God wants to make me a vessel unto dishonor, to use me through sorrow and through pain, God has every right to make me as a vessel unto dishonor. He does. God has every right to, to, to use my sorrow, to use my pain to glorify him as he does to use my favor, his favor upon me to glorify him. God has every right to make Fanny Crosby blind, to give her a unique perspective by which she wrote some of the most beautiful hymns in our hymnal, and to use her through her suffering. God has every right to take the family of Horatio Spafford so that he can put pen those words, it is well with my soul, as he does to bring about blessing so that John Newton can write the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God has every right to use us how he will to glorify himself. If God wants to judge Nineveh to glorify himself, he has the right to do it. If God wants to show mercy upon Nineveh to glorify himself, he has the right to do it. And Jonah, who are you to try to make that decision for God? That's the idea. And so we have made a transition then to Paul. See, God has created us. We operate under his rules. We live by his pleasure. In Paul, uh, uh, Paul, he knew this very purposefully. When the Lord appeared unto him and called him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me on the road to Damascus? He was blinded on that road. And he was led into Damascus by those who had followed him. And then God spoke to a man named Ananias, and he told him to go to Damascus and to pray for Paul, that Saul at the time, that he would receive his sight. And Ananias is skeptical of this. He says, isn't that that guy that wants to kill all of us? And God responds this way. Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he, that Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will so show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Interesting call. Paul, you're chosen unto me. You're chosen to speak to kings. You're chosen to speak to the children of Israel. You're chosen to speak to the Gentiles. You are chosen to suffer great things for me. What would happen? How would you respond if your call to the mission field was God saying, you're chosen to suffer for me? Wait, wait a minute, God. Wait, no, no. I thought I'm, I'm chosen to go, right? No, 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 you're chosen to suffer. No, 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 you mean, you mean go. 
right? And you'll take care of me. No, 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 you're chosen to suffer and I will be with you. <laughs> that's, that, that's kind of tough. But you know what? That's God's right. That's God's right. Paul was a vessel chosen by God to suffer and suffer Paul did. Stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, hungry, alone, forsaken, rejected. That was Paul. Paul didn't always handle it perfectly either. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of Paul's own struggles with these things. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, because God has greatly gifted him, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. The thorn in the flesh. Paul says, I want this gone, Lord. Please take this away. And he said unto me, God said to him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, no, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient. It's enough for you. Can you believe that, Paul? Can you believe that, I, that if I want you to have this thorn in the flesh, that it's... That it's, it's it's right that it is my right to let you suffer in this way that my strength might be made perfect in your weakness so what is Paul how does Paul respond most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities Paul says that the power of Christ may rest upon me he understood the divine right Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul was reminded of the divine right and he submitted to it. God has every right to give or to withhold. Every right to give Paul a thorn in the flesh in order that God might be more glorified and magnified through him. So Paul says, then I'll take pleasure in it. If this is what God wants of me to bring about his glory, then I will, I'll submit. Then I will take it. It's enough that God is glorified. And it is for me thus to then find joy in the place that God has put me. Knowing that one day all wrongs will be made right. Hmm? Our blessed hope. Knowing that one day God will wipe all the tears from our eyes knowing that one day the sorrow and the pain and the loss and the, and, and the frustrations and the difficulties and the burdens, they're all going to go away. And we will simply bask in the joy of our Lord. But till that day, until that day, that day that God has promised, until faith is made sight, God has every right to use me as He will. And this leads us to a final reflection. All that we have is an extension of mercy and grace. And, and by the way, we have so much, don't we? I speak of the potential of loss and God's divine right to all that I have and all that I am. But within the scope of God's design and man's free will, God calls us unto choices. And God has given us a book which reflects His character and His consistency so that we don't need to fear that God is going to randomly change His mind, right? Right? He's not going to get into a bad mood. I'm not going to wake up one day and God's in a bad mood. He's just going to say, aha, house burned to the ground. I'm grumpy today, right? That's not God. God is consistent. 
God has the right to me, but God is not fickle. He is ever faithful and his mercy endures forever. And in the midst of all of these considerations, we are reminded that God's thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace. And that aside from anything physical, God has gone out of his way to grant us eternal life through his own suffering, through his own yieldedness, whereby the, 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 the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, gave even unto his life for us. And so he was killed, hung on a cross, and he was buried and he rose again the third day and he has gone to prepare a place for us and will doubtless come again and receive us unto himself. That where he is, there we may be also. And so while God's divine right means that I have no right truly to question, yet we also find that God has bound himself in his love and his goodness to my best good, hasn't he? God had no requirement upon him to bind himself to redemption. But he did it. God had no requirement on the day that Noah stepped out of the ark to make a covenant with himself that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. But he did it. God had no requirement to bind himself to Abraham and to say that Abraham and his seed would be blessed. But he did it. And God has bound himself to this new covenant, which he purchased with his own blood in his love and goodness to my best good, if only I will align myself with him. I may not always understand how something is my best good. I may not always understand how that, that vein of suffering is what is best for me. I may not understand why that trial is so needful for me. I may not always like what's happening in my life. It may not always be pleasant or easy or even fun. But if I understand things from God's perspective, if I understand the divine right that God has to me, which is what God was telling Baruch in Jeremiah 45, if I understand the God that exercises this right, then I will also come to trust God implicitly. So that if God is doing it, I may not always understand it, but I'm going to trust it and I'm going to take pleasure in it if God might by any means be glorified. And this is the joy of our joy. This is the thing that puts us on that plane whereby we can say with Paul in Philippians chapter 4, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. If God is doing it, I may not always understand it, but I will trust it. And this grounds us in the eternal expectations of the day of redemption and makes the blessed hope our vision. So that when we sing that song, Be Thou My Vision, that's that idea. That I would see nothing, Lord, but you. Because God is good. God is Merciful and his mercy and his goodness are over all of his works. And this should indeed cause us to rejoice in God, who is our Savior, to serve him without wavering, eagerly anticipating the day when our faith will be made sight. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.